Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hey everybody, and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host, Max Cantor. Now today on the show, I have a man who is a public speaker. He's a motivational humorist, and he's also a stand-up teacher. He's been featured in articles in Time Magazine, in Newsweek, in TV Guide, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And finally, he's a self-proclaimed humor resources director. So I have no idea what that means, but we're about to find out. So welcome to the show, Jeff Justice. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you, Max. Great to be here. Now, Jeff, this is a, a weird way to start the show, um, but I have to let you know right off the bat, uh, my dad actually took your stand-up class years and years and years ago when I was five years old. Oh, my God. Yes, and his entire set was about me being five years old. <laughs> and what, what's his name? Yep, so his name is Lee, Lee Cantor. Um, and Lee Cantor, okay. This is when... Um, you know, when the the old punchline uh, before they they left and moved to where it's by the Landmark Diner now. Um, so this was at its previous location, but he did it, and now it's up on YouTube, and I check it out every so often. But yeah, he's the one that actually was like, hey, you should get Jeff Justice on the show. So that's <laughs> <laughs> so you you inspired him to tell me to get you on the show. So blame him is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you know if this if this goes horrible, I'll blame him. But I'm sure it'll be. God, little did I know his uh, comedy would come back to haunt me one day. Okay, so <laughs> let's go with it. <laughs> so uh, now to jump into the interview a little bit, um, tell me, uh, growing up, what were some of your late night influences? Well, I actually have memories of seeing the Steve Allen show before Johnny Carson. But I just, I loved comedy growing up. Uh, I, I would watch um, uh, The Honeymooners, Jackie Gleason's show, just loved all the characters that he did, Red Skelton show. And it, I just couldn't get enough of it. And my dad liked comedies too. So, uh, you know, that was great. We got to watch them. But anything, even Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin movies, I loved. So Steve Allen hosted... Um... Uh, the Tonight Show before Johnny Carson. Yes. What? And I think Jack Parr was before him. So how come you know when people talk about the Tonight Show, they always talk about Johnny Carson? So why don't they bring Steve Allen up and and Jack Parr? I mean, they mention Jack Parr a lot, uh, but why don't you think Steve Allen gets mentioned as much? Thirty years, baby. <laughs> I mean, Johnny did it forever. Yeah, you know, it just kind of wiped out all memory of everybody. I mean, look at your generation, next generation after you. They're not going to remember Johnny Carson. They're going to remember, you know, like David Letterman was the king of late night because he was on there for 30 something years. Right. OK. Yeah. I, I. Yeah, that is very, very true. And you also talked about some other shows, too, like the the Red Skelton show. What is that? Talk about that, because I have no idea what that is. So Red Skelton famous comedian back in the 50s and 60s, uh, had a show that he did a bunch of different uh, characters, Clem Cadiddlehopper. Uh, uh, <laughs> this sounds weird, but these two seagulls. And he was just a great, funny, clean character actor. And uh, it, it just you have to Google some of his old uh, bits that he would do that are still funny uh, today. But he would have guests on there, too, and he had regular little skits 
Crazy Guggenheim and uh, no, no, Crazy Guggenheim was Jackie Gleason's show. But, uh, you know, it's like each week you look forward to seeing what the, what he was going to do next. He had a clown, a silent clown character that he did, but he was just a great comic actor, mime, and a, a wonderful regular actor, too. He was in many movies back in the uh, 40s and 50s. So was the show more of like a talk show or like a variety show? Variety type show. Okay, okay. Except and- from what I remember, it was mostly comedy. I, I you know, my brain's failing me. I, I don't remember it being like musical acts coming on and stuff like that. It was, I, I think it was mostly uh, comedy. So when you watched these late night shows as a kid and as a, you know, like teenager, were you watching them for like the sketches and for the standups that were coming on the show? Well, they, very rarely did they do standup. It was mostly sketch work. And yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to see. I, I wanted to see my favorite characters every week uh, come in and do bits. And then later on, uh, I, I remember one of the hardest I ever laughed as a teenager was at my girlfriend's house watching the Johnny Carson show and seeing Don. No, I, it was the Tommy Smothers, the Smothers Brothers show and seeing uh, Don Rickles for the first time. Mm-hmm. And if you know who the Smothers Brothers are, Tommy Smothers is the perfect foil for Don Rickles, mm-hmm. who gets on people about being dummies and stuff like that. And and it was just like, I just remember lying on the floor, my stomach aching, tears <laughs> you know, pouring out of my eyes. I just thought it was just unbelievable. But at that time, I never uh, had considered at all, you know, being a comedian. Okay, so that I was actually going to ask that is when you were watching these comedians on TV, did you ever try to emulate it or like try to replicate what they were doing to make your friends or family laugh? Well, I, you know, I couldn't do impressions or anything, but I, I was always had a good sense of humor. Matter of fact, I remember in sixth grade, we went to the local, what was going to be our junior high school on, I guess, the visiting day, all the different grammar schools all uh, were on different lines. And I was doing my regular stupid cut-up stuff, whatever that was. <laughs> and and I wound up becoming friends with this person from an, another school later on. His name was Tony Carpenino. And he looked at me and goes, hey, you're funny. You should be a comedian. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> I guess it was prophetic. He didn't know it. And uh, uh, 20 years later, I was on stage at the punchline uh, making him laugh. So you talk about it being 20 years later. So when you're a kid and when you're a teenager, in your mind, you're not thinking, okay, I'm going to be a comedian. Like, this is my life. Not at all. So what were you thinking? What were you thinking about? That I wanted to find a woman to have sex with. <laughs> that was the priority? <laughs> that was the priority. I was a teenager. Come on. That was, that was it. I mean, that's, that's all I thought about pretty much. And, and I guess getting out of the parents' house. I had wonderful parents, but I wanted to move on and be on my own and go to college and get out of uh, New York. So I mean, that's all my thought. I never thought of comedy again until if you want to know the progressions of things, when I was in uh, college down in Miami Dade, I was in a fraternity and one of our pledges uh, came and showed me uh, my first ever sleight of hand card trick. And a sleight of hand card trick is like 10 times better than any regular card trick you've ever seen. And it, it just blew me away. I, I, I was just stunned by it. And since it was a pledge, I could make him teach me how to do it. <laughs> and it, it was the kind of trick that 
you would just wait until everybody else did their tricks if you were at a party or something like that. And then you go, oh, I think I remember one. And then it would like blow everybody away. And I love the attention from it. And, and, it was, and I started learning magic tricks. I actually took lessons in Atlanta from the old uh, M&M magic down in uh, Forest Park years ago from Dan Garrett, one of the top magicians in the country. I didn't realize it at the time. But I was taking one of the top uh, close-up magician guys. I was paying him 10 bucks a lesson to, to learn magic. And from there, later on, I started working at a magic shop. And every time I would try to do something serious, something funny would come out of my mouth. <laughs> and I, I noticed people were laughing. And I was entertaining them. And then probably back in 1980, the Excelsior Mill was the first place in Atlanta to have a one-night of stand-up comedy. And I went to watch the show that night, and there was a guy doing comedy magic. And after a few beers, I'm sitting there thinking, hey, I'm funnier than this guy. And after a few more beers, I got the nerve to go up to the manager and say, hey, you know, I'd like to come up and uh, do this sometime. And he said, sure, come next week. And I'm like, great, man. What do you want me to do, like five minutes or so? And he goes, uh, no, you can do 20. I'm like, Whoa. no problem. And I had no act whatsoever. I had never been on stage, had never performed before a crowd bigger than the ones that used to come in front of our magic shop at the old Omni International Hotel by the ice skating rink, and went home and wrote a 20-minute act, piecing together all the stuff that I did from the uh, magic shop, and went up there and did my first show. And it was amazing. I just killed. I was the only guy that got laughs. I'm going, that's it. I knew it. I'm meant to do this. And Two weeks later, I came back to do it again and brought my girlfriend with her to show her how funny I am and did the same act and nothing. Totally bombed. It's like, oh, she's going, why laugh? And I'd recorded it at, her, at our table and I'm playing the recording back and every once in a while you hear her go, huh, and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> and I found out that it was the same 30, 35 people that came every week oh. to this club. And I was the first new person they had seen in a long time. That's why I got all the laughs. But then when I came back and did the same exact act again, nobody laughed. So that was my my awakening to comedy. But also, it was the first time I got laughs on stage. And once I got those laughs that first time, I was hooked. Wow. So you really, I, you fell into comedy through magic. Yeah. And for years, I was a comedy magic act. Wow. It's, it's kind of like Steve Martin. He took a similar path. Yeah, exactly. So when he was a, he was much funnier than me, but we did take similar paths. So <laughs> when when you're a com, like a comedic magician, it, are you pulling your material to like match the tricks that you're doing, or you you're writing jokes alongside the tricks? What I always wanted to do is I always wanted to do really great magic tricks that worked, and then basically use magic as a vehicle to do comedy through. So all the funny lines that I said all had something to do with what was going on on stage at that time, whether I had somebody on stage with me or I was doing a trick by myself, the, like the, whatever, the handkerchief or a bunch of different tricks I did. It, it always had magic and comedy combined with it that made sense. I never just told you, you know, jokes like uh, like a heady young man when he was up to, or, or who was the one that played the violin victor borga you know he'd, he'd be up there and he'd he'd uh, go to play like some of the piano the violin and then he'd stop he'd tell a joke and then he'd stop playing 
No, it wasn't like that. It all had to do with what was happening magically. Did you ever create your own tricks or you were always taught the tricks? Interesting question. Um, I used tricks that already existed and then put my own spin on them. Like there was this, if you ever go on YouTube and look up Jeff and Rocky, uh, this little raccoon puppet that I used to do that used to just, it was, it's hysterical a little bit, but the spring, it's called a spring animal. And they've been around for years and years, but through uh, this one fella that taught me how to really make it look alive. Uh, I wound up taking it to a whole nother level that nobody had ever seen before. And it, it just killed. I, I'm doing that on stage and people would just be in tears. <laughs> it's do a funny bit. Uh, so, so when, when it comes to magic, do you still do it? Like, are you still actively learning tricks and practicing? Uh, yes and no. Yes, I'm still doing it. No, I'm not actively learning or practicing. Basically, in my corporate programs, uh, I do two tricks. I do the linking rings, which I actually took out of my presentation for a while. And then when my customers would have me back again, they're going, and of course, you're doing the linking rings. I said, nah, I'm not really doing that anymore. Like, we love that. And I go, well, anybody's seen the linking rings. I go, but we love the way that you do it, you know, with bringing the people up there and doing that. And I'm like, and I, so I put it back in there. People love that. And then what I'm known for is, uh, and again, people can see it on um, my website, the jeffjustice.com, on my corporate video, demo video there, I do this trick, which is the um, handkerchief through the microphone stand. So it's a killer trick. And basically, I just take this handkerchief and put it in front of the mic stand. And you just visibly see it just melt right through the stand and go to the other side of it. And then at the end, I, I, I show everybody how it's done. So I won't, I won't ruin it for you by telling you any more than that. You have to go to jeffjustice.com and <laughs> check out the video to see. But it, 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 that's, those are the only two things I do. I did magic for years for my daughters when they were in school. I did... Uh, kind of close-up magic and Rocky for, for their classes, for their birthday party, uh, when my, my kids would have their birthday. But I, I never actively did it. And it's funny, I was invited over to a friend's house about three months ago, who we've known for years. And they actually saw me at Jerry Farber's old club years before we ever met. And uh, she just kind of offhandedly asked me, she said, would you, because she was having like a game night or something. That's how old I've gotten. We don't like throw, we don't have like swinging sex parties anymore. We have game night. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I've actually had a swinging sex party because yeah. I didn't know Matt Lauer that closely. <laughs> but uh, uh, but um, she kind of offhandedly said, you know, would you mind doing, you know, a few tricks? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Okay, I'll bring some stuff with me. And I had to practice my butt off for about a week or two just to remember some of the old sleight of hand stuff that I did. But uh, they, they seem to really like it. So it was a lot of fun. What was your all-time favorite trick that you did? Um, Rocky's my favorite thing to do. Yeah. The raccoon bit. It's not even a trick. And it, there's not a single joke in the whole thing. And it's funny all the way through. It's a, it's a, it's one two-and-a-half-minute visual sight gag. That didn't even make sense, does it? Visual sight gag like this. <laughs> a non-visual sight gag. <laughs> but uh, 
it's it's one long sight gag, and it, it's something that other comedians admired me for. Going, man, that's just a classic bit. And I've gotten to do it on TV a few times, uh, you know, on national shows. So that was kind of cool. And and that's what I was really known for. I, I really think the best trick I do is the handkerchief to the mic stand. But if you like, my favorite thing to do uh, was Rocky. Like I say, you have to see it. You'll, you'll find it on the internet. If it, well, you know what, when I get off, I'll send you a link to it. I got your email address here. Yeah, please do, because I definitely want to check it out. Um, when did you start, you know, the separation of, okay, magic's great, but I'm going to start focusing only on stand-up? Well, I guess after I did my first big TV show. I mean, yes, yeah, the first or second, yeah. Because basically what it was, when you did a national TV show, none of the other national shows wanted you to come back on and do the same stuff you just did Right. on somebody else's show. They wanted to be first. And I already did Rocking and the Handkerchief on the Thick of the Night show and Comedy Tonight and I think one other show. And the other things that I had, like the linking rings and the sword through neck and all these other tricks I had, they weren't appropriate for TV because I had to get people out of the audience to come up and help me. And it just it, it wasn't going to work for the venues I wanted to be on. And I started writing stand up and it was tough because at that time I was headlining. And there were a lot of funny feature acts, but my comedy magic act really held its own. But when I started adding stand up, I started adding that to the front of my act. And I was having to follow guys like Kevin Regan, um, Jeff Foxworthy, uh, you name it back then, because they were still feature acts, and they were kicking my tail, because they were really, really funny guys. And they were finishing up with their best, funniest stuff, and I was starting off with my weakest stuff, which was my new stand-up. But it took me about a year to kind of get my feet underneath me, and finally started getting funnier with it and, and finding my own with it. And I, I don't think I ever became a really great stand-up. I'm a much better stand-up teacher than I am a stand-up. That they say, those who, who can't do teach, right? <laughs> but, um, uh, it, it, I mean, it was, it, it was really strange back then. You know, like I say, you got to follow these guys that are like the headliners of today. And they, they were the feature acts of yesterday, and I was on after them. So it was tough. Mm-hmm. When you first started writing, what type of topics and subjects did you uh, write about and talk about in your stand-up? Well, it's either about my life mm-hmm. or it was about stupid things that I saw. Do you remember the first joke that you wrote? Hmm. I, I know the... I know the first one that I wrote <clears throat> that I kept exactly the way that I wrote it. Okay. Because I'm always trying to tell my students that they shouldn't write things in concrete, that with comedy, things aren't written, they're only rewritten. So you get the idea down, you get the joke down, and then that's when the work starts and you got to work on it. But uh, I think the first one, and, and, and it's got a visual component to it too, but it was like, uh, I had I always had a little sarcastic side to it. I said, last week, my bank sends back my rent check saying it's not my signature. I mean, what are they thinking? That some moron ripped off my checkbook and is out there paying my bills? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll really screw them up. 
I'll make a deposit. You know, <laughs> that was, and that's exactly how I wrote it in the car one day coming home from a gig. And it's like, that's, that was it. Uh, I had jokes about smoking and uh, getting suspended in school for smoking. Remember those from back then? But now more, of a, now more, more of my jokes about my life right now, where I talk about uh, being married. So my wife and I got married later in life, first time for her, 38 years old. And uh, our honeymoon, my curiosity got the best of me. I said, look, I know you're 38 and never married, but is there any chance that um, I was first? She says, well, you could have been. You look familiar. <laughs> so, you know, jokes that poke fun at myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I always like to do stuff where I can laugh at myself. And I'll be making fun of somebody else's college. I said, yeah, I'm making fun of you. I went to junior college. <laughs> well, for my first seven years. And then buckled down. Yeah, it was tough. I had a double major, alcohol and drug abuse. So, graduated come loaded so, no. so so you like it and you you find useful the self-deprecating humor yeah i do now th there's a difference between self-deprecating and self-effacing so self-deprecating is like putting yourself down saying i'm stupid i'm bad i'm ugly you know that and self-effacing humor is laughing at what's happened to you in life mm. You know, like, uh, again, like going to junior college and not making it out in two years. Right. Adding a little exaggeration to it or stuff like that. So, and then I'm kind of like laughing at what happens to me in life as opposed to putting myself down. Right. So, like, if you were to say, I went, I went to junior college for four years, I'm an idiot. That would be yeah. more self-deprecating. But like you were yeah. saying, when, when you talk about it uh, and you poke fun at it and then it talk about the i guess bigger idea behind it that's what makes yeah. it different exactly okay so when you are you're doing stand up and i guess things are going well for you when do you take that moment and you're like i want to try to teach when does that happen i know exactly when that happens glad you asked <laughs> it's almost like i was prepared for this question <laughs> yeah when i first moved here to atlanta and i moved here to marry my lovely wife diane Dan Pfeiffer, who was a singer-songwriter here for years and traveled with Tammy Wynette. Got to give her a little plug. <laughs> she was one of her backup singers. And uh, and now, make script spits. So, uh, I came down here, and I, would, I, was still a, I was still headlining, so I was traveling two or three weeks every month, but I was always home on a Monday night. And that's when Jerry Farber's would have their open mic night. So I'd go over to Jerry's club to practice new jokes, work on new material. And I noticed with some of the amateurs there that there were just things that they were doing that were wrong. I mean, as far as I knew, they were wrong. They sounded wrong. It sounded like they had the punch word in the wrong place. Uh, it sounded, you know, that like their setups were too long or you know, a variety of things. And I wasn't really sure, but it, it just sounded like that to me. And I found the ones that I gave advice to and they took it because, you know, not everybody takes your advice, right? right. I was like, hey, what the heck do you know, right? Uh, but I found the ones that took it, they immediately got better. It's like the next time they were on stage, they were funnier than they were before I gave them that advice. And, you know, after a while, I'm thinking, you know, maybe I actually have an idea of, you know, what I'm talking about. And eight of them got together and they asked me to put together a comedy class just kind of to tell them 
what I knew because they were saying that there was definitely stuff that I knew that they didn't. So I agreed to do it with Jerry Farber. And after our first class, Jerry just told me for me to just do the class myself. There was really nothing he could add to it. So I finished up the class. And I was coming towards the end of it. And a guy I knew was teaching a singing class. And he was having a graduation at the end. And I said, hey, that sounds like a good idea. We invite all your friends here and we'll do a graduation and you can do your jokes that you wrote. And that's exactly what we did. We packed Farber's Club and I figured that was it. And at the end of the show, their friends came up to me and said, have you ever thought of doing this for normal people, you know, people that don't want to be comedians? I said, no, but if I ever think of doing it again, I tell you what, give me your phone number because they didn't even have email back then. There was no internet. <laughs> Al Gore hadn't invented it yet. I don't know what I was waiting for. <laughs> but um, I, I basically I copied down people's phone numbers and I, I got about nine or ten phone numbers and I started calling people and said, you want to do a class? And they're like, yeah, sure. I put the thing together and like an idiot, and you got to, it turned out to be a good thing, but, but like an idiot, I invited one of the uh, writers from Creative Loafing to come take the class because I already had one class experience. What the heck? <laughs> and he took the class, wound up dropping out. And even though he dropped out, he wrote a great article about it. And I got a bunch of other people starting to take the class. And then it started to be word of mouth, but thinking that, those eight people were going to be the, the, the only ones that I would ever do. Here it is 27 years later, and I've had almost 3,000 people take the class. Wow. So it's been, a, it's been an incredible experience. I, I, I love doing it. So when those first eight people come to you and they say, okay, make a class for us. Can you make a class for us? As someone who... You know, may, you may have probably never taught a comedy class. What do you do? How do you prepare for that? Well, you, you're so cocky, you think you can do it. <laughs> so th there's no thought in your mind that you can't, even though you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> and I, a Judy Carter comedian and comedy te teacher had come out with a book back then called, uh, I think it's com Comedy Writing the Book, or Stand Up Comedy the Book. And we said, I think I still got it here on my on my bookshelf. Yes, I I do. It's called Stand Up Comedy: The Book. Or it's, what was it? Yeah, but then the next one, the Stand Up Comedy Bible. Yeah. And I basically xeroxed four or five pages from them, stapled them together, uh, told the people to read it, <laughs> and we would go over. Uh, go over the stuff in class and, and they would write uh, some jokes, things that they thought were funny. And they were writing things like I remember one joke uh, guy, David Greenberg, who is now a, a top corporate speaker uh, and also a presentation coach, too. <laughs> Strange enough, uh, his one of his jokes was uh, uh, when my sister and I were young, we'd fight like cats and dogs. She'd scratch me, then I'd pee on her. <laughs> that was so weird. I don't know why I remembered it, but that's the kind of highbrow humor we did the first class with. And uh, and that was it. I, you know, I would say, well, you know, maybe you should say that like this, or maybe you should emphasize this word. I think it'd be better, or that seems too long. Let's take out this part here. 
And over 27 years, I got to the point that uh, basically, I've, I mean, I don't know how you say it and, and be modest, but uh, I'm, I'm a much better joke rewriter than I am a joke writer. I'm a great joke rewriter. And I, I just really got a talent for delivery. I, I can listen to somebody's delivery and help them improve it so it fits, so they don't sound like a Jeff Justice clone. Mm. They sound like themselves. It's delivered in, in the way that they speak and they talk. And when you get to stand-up comedy, 90% of it is delivery. Mm-hmm. So, and that's the part that most people murder because they're monotone or they drop their voice on the punchline. They don't emphasize the right word. And sometimes it's just the right syllable of the word. And one, a, a woman in one of my classes this last time said, okay, I want to keep going on this. So what rules can you give me for delivery on how to, when to pause and when to emphasize stuff? And I said, like I said in class, there are no rules. There's no rule that says, after you do this, pause, then say this, or emphasize the 13th word in every sentence or something, you know? And I said, I just do it all by ear. I hear you doing it, and I know when it's right and when it's not right. And I can help you change it so that it is. Mm-hmm. What? So, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question or not, or... Yeah, no. Honestly, that's all I get to say about that. But (laughs) honestly, uh, I got so involved in your story that I don't even remember what I originally asked. So it it entertained me. It amused me. Uh, When you have a new class, you know, each session, what's the number one issue with people that you've seen over the course of the years? The number one problem that they have with stand up? Too long. Too long. Too long. Yeah, they they they're verbose. They're they want to put everything uh, into the joke that they can think of. And they think that more makes it better when more makes it worse. Mm-hmm. So one of the main things that I do for my students, I think, is editing. Is I am just chopping and chopping and chopping uh, words out of their routines. Mm. Now, you know, like an example I'll give, if, if you're writing a joke about, let's say, what a bad cook your sister is you don't have to say well i went to my sister's house last week she lives way out in conyers and you know about 20 uh five 30 minutes from here and so way out you know uh, i i 20 and i'm driving out there she lives down this long dirt road and you know it's like takes you forever to get down there and you finally get up there and she's got this old broken fence around the house six dogs and you know it's like you don't need any of that the joke is about what a bad cook your sister is i'm Eating dinner at my sister's house and boom, say the joke. <laughs> right. You know, you combine things together. I had one guy going, well, I, I grew up in New York City. Uh, we're Irish, Roman Catholic. There were seven kids in our family. I mean, he's saying all that before he even gets the punchline. And I said, you know, you can change all that to I came from a, a large Irish Catholic family in New York. Right. Boom. You just said all of that. And you said it in one sentence instead of three sentences. So the more you can cut things down, that's that's going to be your first thing. I mean, I've had I've had people come to class with their first joke, and their first joke was a page and a half. <laughs> wow. And they're only doing a four-minute routine, which is a page and a half. Mm-hmm. And so basically they talked for four minutes, and they had one small little punchline at the end. Mm-hmm. And and I'm going, yo, that's such a bad deal for your audience. So 
I'll read you what I'd say. So this is my favorite quote that I put on the front of the comedy book. It says, in anything at all, perfection is finally attained, not when there is no longer anything to add, but when there is no longer anything to take away. Mm. And that's from Antoine de saint Exupéry. <laughs> so yeah. some old guy sounds French, whatever, but that's just it. Not when there's nothing left to add, when there's nothing left to take away. When you've taken away everything you can and it's the joke is there, that's it. Like I always say to my students, you know, after you write your joke, look back at it and go, what am I trying to say? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to say my sister's a bad cook. Great. Let's get to that as quickly as possible. Have you ever had a student who came into the class who you were just like, oh, this person's like good. Like they are, they know exactly what they're doing. I, I, I guess I say I've had people that, uh, that I thought were really funny. Yeah. I, I've had people that, uh, give you an example, and this might be a long story for you, but there was a woman who, from the first day of class, I just knew she was funny. And, you know, sometimes, you know, like Southern women, sometimes they just might have that way of talking where you, you swear they could read a phone book and then be funny. Mm. <laughs> and she comes, she's telling me, she says, Jeff, I've been doing educational seminars for years. I do five of them a week. They're one hour seminars and I don't get any laughs at all. And I'm thinking that's got to be impossible. You either have to have the worst audience in the world or something. <laughs> and she goes, I know I'm saying things that are funny, but nobody laughs. Well, the next week when she came in to do her first joke, I understood why she never stopped talking. Uh, I mean, I don't think she took a breath in the whole thing. And I, I said, you got to stop. Because you, when, once you say something that's funny, you got to stop talking to give the audience a chance to laugh. Because the audience isn't going to interrupt you with their laughter if you're talking. They're polite people. You know, they, they want to hear what you have to say. So every time you start talking again, they're going to stop laughing. And she said that next week, Monday, same thing happened, no laughs. Tuesday, no laughs. Wednesday, she finally figured out, what the heck, I'm going to give it a try. And the first place that she knew she had a joke in the punchline, she said it and just like bit her lip. And people started laughing and she just freaked out and started talking. And of course, they stopped. (laughs) (laughs) And she tried it again. They started laughing. She freaked out and they started. They stopped again. And then the next day, she just said, I just promised myself, I knew I had these eight different places in my uh, presentation that I knew were funny. And I just forced myself every time to just stop, like they, like you said, until they stop laughing. And she said, by the time Friday came around, she had to take 15 minutes worth of material out of her presentation because wow. people were laughing so, so loud. And, you know, people coming up after were going, you should be a stand-up comedian. But... <laughs> Just getting her to shut up and and to let people laugh is huge because what happens is people are so afraid that uh, if they if they said to, say something that they think is funny that people aren't going to laugh and they're going to stand up there looking silly or foolish. So what do they do? They fill that silence with their own voice so there isn't a chance of getting that deadly si- silence and that cuts off the laughter. Right. So once they learn that they if they shut up and let people laugh. They will. They might not all the time, but they're definitely not going to go if you keep talking. So if you do be quiet, then you got a chance. Right. Now, I, I have to say, I am a big fan. I'm a big fan um, of Jerry Seinfeld. I love his show, uh, Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee. And in one episode, 
he said something that uh, he said a quote that has stuck with me for a long time. Um, so I want to bring What's it up that? with I want to bring it up with you because I mean you're a stand up teacher and it's about comedy classes. So Jerry Seinfeld said, "If you are funny." You should never take a comedy class because there's nothing left for you to learn. People will find your funny eventually. So do you agree with that? And if you do, why? And if you do not, why? Yes, no. Okay. <laughs> I agree with it because that is the truth for Jared. I, th I think Jerry's probably discovered a lot of truths along the way that – um, he might not have found if somebody had told him about it. That's his personality. That's how he is. I'd say he's dead wrong, and most comedians are dead wrong when they talk about the benefits of a comedy class. Matter of fact, it, when I first moved to New York to do stand-up comedy, remember all I had was my little 20-minute magic, magic comedy act, and I went to see a show in the city that I was living in, Yonkers. And it was just a one-night show in a bar with three comedians, which is what they do, called one-nighters. They're all over the place. I went to see the show, not realizing that the main, the three people in the show were incredible. It was Paul Reiser, uh, Joe Bolster, who had just won the, the laugh-off, and Carol Siskin, who's wonderful female comedian, uh, has been on, you know, more shows than I, I can imagine. And I'm watching this amazing show going, oh, my God, is the people in Yonkers are this funny? How funny are the people in New York? I'm realizing <laughs> these were the New York comedians. So after the show, I went up to one of the guys, this guy, Joe, and I said, uh, hey, you know, great show and everything. You know, I moved up here to do comedy. Uh, and I see in the paper here they've got uh, comedy classes available in the city. Do you think that's something worth pursuing? And he looks at me and says, nah, I think you either got it or you don't. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I never signed up for a comedy class. Mm. And I beat my head against the wall for four years, five years, trying to figure out comedy, making every mistake, every simple mistake that, I mean, stuff that I had tell my students by the second night, I was still making four years later um, because you don't know any better. And uh, the good thing was that instead of taking stand-up comedy classes, I took improv classes. And the improv really helped me in my comedy career because when you get good at improv, basically anything can go wrong, wrong on stage and you're, you're fine with it because you know you're going to think of something funny to say. Right. So my wife used to say, you know, you're funnier when you mess up than when you actually do your routine. Right? <laughs> I appreciate that, your support. But <laughs> I, I believe my comedy class, for people that want to be stand-up comedians, I think it cuts two two to three years off their learning cycle. So by the time you leave the class, you're not making all these mistakes. You can go out there and start writing jokes and know, you know that the punch word goes at the end. Is, it's the last thing that you say. You know that it should have a little bit of energy to it or, or a lot of energy, depending on what it is, that you don't drop your voice on. You know, you know not to be monotone, to let your attitude drive what you're saying up there. You know all these things because I drove them into your head for six weeks. Right. As opposed to, I mean, I remember going on stage just making horrible mistakes and the MC coming up to me going, Justice, you know, didn't you ever hear the threes? I'm like, the threes? What is that? Is that like a magic formula? You know, I mean, if I was going to write a book, it would be the science of comedy. You know, there's, there's so many different rules that I have figured out or 
discovered over the years that um, they just aren't anywhere or nobody tells you. Mm. you know, like one, one that I came up with was time and place always go first, except when time or place is what makes it fun. Mm. What does that mean to anybody? You know, it doesn't mean anything to anybody, but it's very important. You know, it's a big difference between saying, uh, when I get when I get to work tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell my boss to take this job and shove it. Or to say, I'm going to tell my boss to take this job and shove it when I get to work tomorrow morning. Which one of those has more power to you? The first or the second? To me, probably the first. Yeah. Yeah. Because I put the time and place at the end. I mean, I mean at the beginning. Right. Because that's not the important part. The important part is that I'm going to tell my boss to take this job and shove it. Right. But then the other part of that is ex- time and place always go first, ex- except when time and place is what makes it funny. So if I'm saying, boy, you know, I'm one of those people, uh, I love to sleep in the nude. You know, to me, to me, nothing is it's more refreshing than just waking up from the sleep totally naked. I love it. People in church hate it. <laughs> So there you had to find out that the place was at the end. Right. 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 Because that was the surprise. So time and place always go first, except when time and place is what makes it funny. So bizarre things like that that I know that I've come up with over the years that uh, I have no idea where they came from in my brain, but they're there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So you mentioned a little bit earlier about you taking an improv class. And I know you, you know, used to be a stand up comedian. So every stand up I get on my show, I like to ask them this question because I think it's super interesting. Um, Can you tell me your worst heckling story, if you have one, or how you deal with hecklers? I can tell you how I deal with hecklers. Okay. And, and it's really weird. I don't get a lot of hecklers because I'm, I'm not that type of act. I don't inspire people to jump up and go, you suck! I'm going to kill you! you know? <laughs> right. So um, what I tell my students is you got to listen to what the person's saying. All right? Sometimes they're trying to help you. Sometimes they're just behind. You know, they just got the joke that you said, 45 seconds ago. Uh, sometimes they've never been in a comedy club before. They don't know how to act. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was in Long Island one time and I had these this table women in front of me. And you could tell they'd never been in a comedy club before. They'd been to bars. And what do you do when you're in a bar with your friends? You talk, right? Right. And I'm up on stage doing my routine and this woman's going, so then Vinny calls me up. This son of a bitch, and I, you know, Susan, man, we're trying to do a show up here. Yeah, okay, go on, check my up. So then the son of a bitch <laughs> drives over this Camaro, and I'm like, lady, we're doing a show here. She goes, I know, go on. So then the bastard comes, <laughs> on. I think I finally like bopped her on the head with the microphone. Go, would you shut up? Uh, right. Oh, she was so, she couldn't understand it. She was like so pissed. <laughs> you know, I just, you know. You, what do you do? But I tell people, uh, like, usually what I'll do is, like, like an exercise that I'll do in the class is I'll tell one of the students, uh, I said, I'm just going to start doing my routine here. And at some time, this seems appropriate. I just want you to yell out, like, you suck. Okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm in front of the class doing my routine, and, and they'll yell out, you suck. And I go, oh, great. My dad's here. <laughs> and that's it. All right? So I'm, again, poking fun of myself a little bit, right? 
Right. And then I break eye contact with them because if I keep my eye contact with them, then it's it's basically challenging them going, yeah, come on, what else you got? Which I don't want. I don't want to start a fight. You know, there's a lot of comedians that do like to do that, that, you know, just love to just get into it with somebody. And I always think somebody's really stupid going against somebody who makes a living on a stage and is holding a microphone. Right. And and you're going to uh, best him heckling up. So I'll start off with something like that. Then if somebody says something again, you know, I'll say something a little stronger. Now, come on, pal, pal, you know, give me a break. You know, I don't come to your job and kick the broom out of your hand. Yeah. <laughs> I don't come to your job and you're working and tell you when it's time to flip the quarter pound or, or right. whatever. And then, you know, if they keep, and then if it happens again, I'll, I'll say something nice to them. I'll say, you know, uh, now, what's your name? You know, Bob, Bob, hey, look, you know, you paid to get in the show here. Everybody else around you did, too. They're trying to enjoy the show. Uh, let's let them do that. If you want to talk with me, let's talk at the end of the show. All right, so now I've got everybody else on my side, too, hopefully. I've been a nice guy. I haven't been a jerk. I haven't really gone after him or anything. So now if he continues to heckle, or heckle they're going to be on my side. And so then next time he says something, I'll just stop and, and I may go, uh, hey, Max, what's the problem? Do you want a good joke? And you go, yeah, look down. Uh, <laughs> of course, the guy looks in his lap and everybody laughs at him. And, uh, you know, usually that one stops him. But I mean, I guess my worst heckler things was Fordham University doing colleges and a guy so drunk that he's run out of things to say. And now he's just making sounds. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there's no way you can, you know, insult the guy or say anything to him that's going to make him stop because he's just incoherent right. he's just drunk and nobody else is doing anything about it <laughs> you know you would think somebody would go hey benny come on stand outside you know let's let the guy finish the show here no so i've never gotten in a fight with anybody you know fist fight uh one of my favorite ones i had a young guy give me a hard time in new york once and i guess i was about 45 at the time and he was maybe about 19 or 20 and uh, he's giving me a hard time. Okay, I said, "Come on, pal, you know, give me a break up here, okay? You know, I'm old enough to be your dad. You know, hey, maybe I am. What's your mom's name?" <laughs> that was a great one. <laughs> that kind of stopped him dead. Got a uh -huh. good laugh. Uh huh. And that was that. So that was an original one that I just come up with off the spot. Mm -hmm. You know, because I, I mean, originally I was just going to say, "Hey, give me a break. I'm old enough to be your dad." And then, as a lot of comedy happens, something. All of a sudden, pops in your brain, and you say it, and it's funny, and it's in your act for the rest of your life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you don't get rid of good material, my friend. No, you should keep it. You should most definitely yes. keep it. Um, exactly. Who is your... So, and, you know, to get back to the thing with Seinfeld, too... Oh, yes, yes. ...is you have to realize that, in, at least in my comedy classes in Atlanta, 95 96% of the people that take my class every year do not want to be stand-up comedians. Mm. They're taking it because they're a business person. They want to be a better speaker. They know that humor is going to make them better at presenting their ideas to people. Two, they want to get over their fear of speaking. And they figure if they can stand on stage at the punchline for four and a half minutes and be funny, uh, it's going to break right through their fear barrier, which it does. Uh, they want to, they're just a thrill seeker. This sounds crazy. I've already jumped out of an airplane. It's on my bucket list. I want to do this. And they do that. Or they got a friend that they want to do it with. Hey, let's go do a comedy class. 
I have one guy that takes my comedy class every year. And he says, you know what? This is my fun thing because I get to put together a four-minute routine. I invite 30 or 40 of my friends to the show. And I get to go in front of a packed house. And I'm a star for the night. And they're just in awe of what I'm doing up there because none of them would ever try to do it. <laughs> so and you know, it's, it's changed people's lives. I mean, I, I know that's very cliche to say that, but I hear from people years and years and years later that this class has had an impact on my favorite example was and uh i don't want to get too spiritual on you but at some point i was thinking of quitting the teaching the comedy class my corporate uh business was doing great i was doing a hundred and something programs a year the comedy class i'm thinking am i really helping anybody with this thing you know it's just you know this, this class and I was show you how old it was. I was at Blockbusters. I had my daughters with me looking for movies. They're running around being noisy. And I'm going, hey, come on, cut it out. You know, be, be quiet. Go find your thing. Let's go. And I kind of, as I said, I always ask God what I need uh, some help on something. So I'm just kind of looking up going, God, this comedy club, uh, comedy class thing, is it, am I really helping anybody with this? Should I just quit this and just focus on doing my corporate stuff? And from across the room, right after I finished that thought, this guy walks over, walks right up there and says, I know you don't remember me, but I took your comedy class about nine years ago. And I, I did happen to remember the guy. He says, I just want to tell you that every wonderful thing that's happened in my life is a direct result of me taking your class. And my life has been fantastic. And I wanted to thank you. Wow. Shakes my hand, turns around, turns around and walks out the door. And I looked up and said, OK, God, I'll keep teaching. Yeah, sold. <laughs> so, I'm sold. I'm sold, man. There's Angel Gabriel came down and just said, keep playing. Wow. So, so that's it. And that, that's why, you know, I teach the class no matter what. It used to be if I didn't have exactly 20 people or at least 18 people sign up, I wasn't going to teach the class. And then, it, then it became, you know what? Who's ever here is supposed to be here. Luckily, it does sell out every time now. But I just had a level two class and I had eight people in it. Mm. And I said, you know what? You are the eight that need to be here for this. Exactly. And they were. And they just loved it. It was incredible. It's a wonderful experience that I couldn't have gotten with a class of 20. And but luckily, financially, that doesn't happen often. <laughs> like my, my January class is already sold out. I'm, I'm working on my April, May class now. Wow. I think I might have one left in the January. I'll have to go on the website and see, but there might be one left. Who is your favorite stand-up comedian today to watch? I, I really like Brian Regan. Oh, he is a good one. <laughs> he is a he's good one. He's clean and he's funny and he's goofy and I, I, I like his style of comedy. That's a hard question for me because I got to tell you, I don't, I know this sounds weird, but I don't watch a lot of stand-up comedy. Hmm. I, I will look for different clean comedians to, to send out clips to, to my students so they can be reassured. Yes, there are funny people that are clean and they're not grabbing their crotch and they're not cursing. Because uh -huh. I believe with my comedy class, it, if you can go on stage the first time and be funny being clean, you can do anything. Mm. But if you got to go up there and curse to get laughs, then that's all you're ever going to do. You're never going to be any better than that. Mm. So, I, like I said, I, I don't watch a lot of comedy. I don't go to comedy clubs unless I'm performing at it during my graduation. I, I don't perform in clubs anymore because uh, I've, I've lost my comedy club chops. You know, in order to be a headline comedian, you got to be in the clubs all the time mm -hmm. you know, to keep get your timing down. And since I teach now and do the corporate ones, now 
my corporate presentation, I can do anytime, anyplace, anywhere. But it's completely different from my old stand-up comedy one. So I would never go on stage trying to perform as, as a stand-up comedian again. I, I'm going to stay as my humor resources director and uh, <laughs> corporate humorist. So for somebody who is not sure if they want to get involved in stand-up or they really don't know how to take that first step to start doing stand-up, what's, something, what's a piece of advice you would give them to do to take that first step? You know, this sounds so, 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 a little bit easy for me to say. Sounds uh, like I'm patting myself on the back, but take my class. At the end of my class, you'll know whether it's for you or not. And I'm telling you, I get people that take the class. When, when I first start the class, I'll say, how many people want to be a stand-up comedian? And five, six, maybe seven hands will go up. And at the end of the class, I go, okay, how many of you still want to be a stand-up comedian? And maybe one hand will go up. Because <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of work. Uh-huh. You know, people think, I, I don't know how people can understand this but or, or believe this. They think that comedians are just naturally funny and that they just go up, like Robin Williams just goes up on stage and just improvs uh, for 45 minutes. I go, no, he, that's a show that he does. There might be a little improv in it, but he, he basically knows uh, most of the stuff that he's going to do during, during that show. Mm-hmm. You know, as a stand-up comedian, to do a 45-minute program, it takes years to come up with that much really funny material. And as a headliner, you got to be funnier than all the people that went on in front of you. And you got to make sure that you're not talking about the same topics as they are. Right. Yeah, I, I had one comedy show one time I was doing in Columbia, South Carolina, and I was the headliner. I'm working with two other guys. All three of us are white. All three of us are about six three. All of us wear glasses, and all of us were married with kids and worked out. Oh boy. And I'm like up there you know, headlining going, well, you know, has Bob and Rick said, hey, I work out too, you know? Right. Yeah, it, it's the only difference between the three of us was I had a mustache. <laughs> and that was it. It was like we were the same person. That's So it, it's a tough job being that, that headliner. And being a comedian, when you start first start off, you're not making good money at all. Mm-hmm. You're making horrible money. You're traveling all over the country trying to get it. And you're doing any job anybody will let you have. But if, if you... You can't, you can't want to be a comedian. It's got to be something you have to be. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's too hard of a job to say, well, I think I'll try comedy and see if I like that. But take the class and see if you like it. But nobody's going to make it trying it going on the road as a stand-up comedian. When I did stand-up comedy, it was something I had to do. I didn't care if I starved. I didn't care if I had to sleep on couches, floors, whatever. I was going to be a comedian. Once I got those first big laughs, I was hooked. So in addition, there was no turning around. <laughs> in addition to you teaching stand-up, talk about what else you do, because I know that's just you know that's just the tip of the iceberg. But there's so much more. Yeah. So what else do you do in addition to teaching? Well, my main income comes from corporate. I I started years ago again because I was a clean comedian. Agents would see me performing at the punchline. And they got me to start doing lunch and learn programs where I'd come in and do my clean little 45 minute stand up comedy act uh, when people were for lunchtime and, you know, make five, six hundred dollars doing that. And then a friend of mine talked me into doing a program on humor and stress, the effects of humor and laughter on stress. And I studied everything that I could find on that 
from Dr. Norman Cousins and Dr. Fry at Stanford University and whoever else had information on read every article and put together a program on that with him and put together another program with a friend of mine on humor and training, teaching trainers how to use humor. And eventually, I, I won't bore you with all the details, but eventually I took all that material, uh, merged it with my stand-up act, took, took out the stuff from my stand-up act that wasn't appropriate, even though it was clean, wasn't appropriate for a corporate audience, mm -hmm. and put together a keynote presentation, which did really great. I mean, it still does to this day. It's got a lot of fun stuff into it. And once again, I'm only using humor to get my messages across, to get my, instead of the, using humor for the magic tricks, now I have all these different points about how to deal with stress and work and balance in life. And I use humor to drive those points home. So I, I would say 80% of my business is doing keynotes like that. I'm doing those every week or two weeks or throughout the year. And then I also do training programs for businesses where they want me to come in and, and train their managers or uh, the people that have to give presentations on how to speak effectively using humor. Mm. Okay. And you travel all around the country to do that? I do. Okay. What's the I probably work a lot more outside of Atlanta than I do inside Atlanta because the old saying in speaking is that you got to travel at least 60 miles to be an expert. <laughs> Well, I, people, I was people gonna, don't want somebody from their own hometown. I was gonna say, what's the the coolest place that you've been able to go through your uh, corporate, where traveling to work with different corporations? Well, if I hadn't already been there with my family two times, I would have said Atlantis in the Bahamas was the coolest place. Oh, that is pretty cool. Oh, that's amazing! They flew me down there. It was like the Southeastern Mortgage Association, so. I got three or four days down there. I told my wife I had to stay down for four days. I said, I'm sorry, hon, I'm going to come back, but they need me to do a, <laughs> uh, uh, a breakout session. Yeah, that's right, a breakout session too. <laughs> yeah. So I got to go there. I've been to Vegas uh, on some of the big stages there. Uh, that's intimidating and a lot of fun. I'm sure. Uh, the Fox Theater playing the big, the big Egyptian ballroom, the, the main theater there. That's, that's a comedian's dream playing that. I got to do the Coca-Cola Music Awards there years ago. And I, I've played a lot of their other rooms in there over the years. But uh, I, I have to say those were the most most fun ones going, oh, yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. So for my last question for you, this is a question that I ask every single uh, guest on my show. So you're in good company with this. Um, if you were to give one piece of advice to somebody who eventually wants to be in your shoes, what piece of advice would you give them? Get on stage as much as you can. I even tell that to my students, the ones that want to come back and take another class. I could go on stage. Nothing's going to make you funnier once you know the basics than being on stage. So if, if there's some place nearby you that you can take a comedy class and the person's really good, then take that comedy class, learn the basics, and just keep writing and writing and writing and make it a job. Seinfeld you know, would write four or five hours a day. Most comedians don't write at all. And all they do is every once in a while, they think of a joke and they throw it in their act. Mm -hmm. Where if you're really working hard and you're writing and you're getting on stage and you're trying new stuff and you're discovering who you are uh, on that stage, that is, there, there is no replacement for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you're 
you know, the more shots you take, the the odds are going to grow that you hit a bullseye. You know what I mean? So I completely agree. Well, also, it, I know this sounds obvious, but the more you are on stage, the more comfortable you are on stage. Very true. And you're able to deal with whatever can come at you, whether it's hecklers or problems with the equipment or you name it. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember a friend of mine performing on stage down Mobile, Alabama, during a three-day rainstorm. That night, there's like 25 people in the audience, and they're only there to get out of the rain. And he said, he is just bombing. Nothing's going over. And he tells another joke. And just as he says the punchline, the ceiling behind him caves in. And <laughs> thousands and thousands of gallons of water crash onto the stage behind him. And he looks back at the audience and says, man, even God didn't like that joke. <laughs> <laughs> and he said the audience went crazy laughing. And then they loved him for the rest of the night. But, wow. uh, <laughs> And that's what ad-libbing will do for you, too. You learn to ad-lib. I, get, I have a CD, I think, on my website, my corporate website for ad-libbing. Mm. But if they want to know more about the comedy workshop, if you Google Jeff Justice, you're going to find it. If you Google comedy classes in Atlanta, you're going to find it. If you can't, uh, I, I, that's what I would do because my nobody's got a pen waiting to copy down my URL. So just Google Jeff Justice or comedy classes Atlanta. And you will find me there and I'll have all the information. Like I said, January, I've got one class left and I'm starting to work on April now. Yeah, well, I was actually I was actually going to ask you once you finished answering that my advice question. I was going to say, if people want to take your class or learn more about you, where can they find you? But there you go. You answered it. Yep. You, I could say comedy workshop with two P's and E dot com, but. Then people are like, what? What was that? Huh? <laughs> and Shoppy? Don't, I don't know. Don't it's worry. I'll put comedy classes and you'll find it. The link, I'll put the link um, on the show's website so that way everyone will be able, anyone who's taking a listening, if you just look at Jeff's bio in the description, you'll be able to see the link. But thank and you. And I'm going to send you a link for the Rocky Raccoon routine so you can enjoy that. Let me know what you think of it. Yes, please, please do send me that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching that. But. Jeff, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot about you and just how your, you know, your your philosophy about stand up today. Well, so you're saying I wasn't on the show just because you thought you were talking to Jeff Foxworthy? <laughs> no, no. I, I see. <laughs> but you know, I do have to ask you though, because you you bring up like your name. You're you have a very you have a good name. You have a very it's solid. like a superhero name. It is. It is a very solid name. Everybody that I told, I was like, I'm interviewing Jeff Justice. Every single person was like, that man has a cool name. You do. He does. You have a very cool name. But uh, so my parents, the kids were Jim, John, Jeff, Jennifer, and Jackie Justice, and my kids are Gianna and Jenica. So the curse goes on. <laughs> That's <laughs> it's one of the most fantastic things I've ever heard. <laughs> so so thank you, <laughs> thank you for that, Jeff. Wow. You're welcome, Max. <laughs> well, thanks again to Jeff for being on the show. And to anybody listening, remember, you can find us at our Facebook page at Talking Late Night. You can find us on our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. You can also find us on iTunes, where remember to rate and leave us a review. So thanks again to Jeff for being on the show. Thanks to you for listening, and we will see you next time.